This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. First of all, I should say thank you for willing to stay up until midnight to record with me. That's flattering. Um, Not many people would be willing to stay that late regardless. I know that you uh, probably prefer being asleep, but for better or worse, you're with me right now. That's the first thing. Second thing, willing to speak to me at a time of global pandemic. I'm assuming you still have better things to do than talk to me equally flattering that you're willing to talk to me while the world is mostly shut down and that you're willing to engage a topic that I don't know enough about and I know that you have explored heavily it's new terrain for me so for all of the reasons and more it's really a privilege to speak to you again Eric we do run into each other from time to time on the streets of Beirut I think we've run into each other in New York once or twice in the past um, we're probably better at eating at Sherbils, Le Chef, and Jemaisi and playing chess than we are doing something more formal. But let's try to upgrade the friendship yeah. <laughs> to a professional. Yeah. Yeah. Le Chef and the, the Beirut cafes are our, our natural habitat. Too many times have I seen you crossing the street with your sunglasses on, shorts, sandals, in the summer heat, you know, going from cafe to cafe. <laughs> <laughs> On a Monday, yeah, and I'm probably that doing was, the same that was, thing. That was the that was the routine when when getting out of the house was was a possibility, and I was still yeah. in Beirut. And it is actually it speaks to the moment that even if we were in Beirut, even if we were here in New York together, the chances are we wouldn't be doing it in person. That we'd still be resorting to this uh, this way of communication. Yeah. Before anything, I didn't know that you have a series of articles and if I may, they're more than articles, they're essay-like stories on the despair, the struggle, the whole world of migration. There's at least 15, 20 sort of articles that explore the whole terrain. I'm going to link these uh, to the to the episode. Um, and I like that you've updated it to the point that coronavirus is now part of the story as well. I'm just going to start off from there and then we can kind of go backwards and we'll explore yeah. more things as well, not just uh, not just migration. But uh, in your mind, the authoritarian trend that seems to take hold in times of crisis, there's a border like sensitivity. People are looking inwards to a point nationalism, the way we understand it, that there's a reluctance to really pay attention to the ongoing suffering, whether it's people in the sea drowning, whether it's people sort of fleeing a war zone and trying to make their way through Turkey into Europe, or even not too long ago, these very, very difficult 
attempts from Lebanon. And you talk about this as well, these sort of boats fleeing from the north, trying to get to Cyprus. Does the coronavirus, does COVID-19 play a role in making it all the more difficult, uh, more challenging for, let's say, Europeans that want to help and for those that are suffering, making their way into Europe, hoping that there is help on the way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a good place to start when thinking about this is it's sort of a weird moment to think about um, mobility and people continuing to cross borders around the world because so many of us are being told to stay in our houses, not leave our cities, really trying to to limit how much we're moving. Mm -hmm. um, but I think one of the most interesting things that I've heard and probably one of the most important things that I've heard um, in the reporting that I've been doing on migration during the coronavirus pandemic um, is that the, the factors that cause people to flee from where they are haven't been put on hold um, because right. of the pandemic. So if you're a Syrian in um, Idlib um, and the Russian slash regime bombing campaign is continuing, you have just as much of an incentive to get out of there as you would have had before coronavirus. Right. Um, if you're an Eritrean in a detention center in Libya um, where you know systematic abuse takes place, um, where there's a civil war taking place, um, if you're able to get out of that situation and get on a boat to try to make it to Europe, you're absolutely going to want to try to do that. So I think there's there's a little bit of like a in, incongruousness happening mm -hmm. where, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here saying, you know, everyone's telling me to stay put. The thing that I have to do in order to control this situation is to stay where I am. Yet there are people in the world who are continuing to cross borders and do it irregularly. Right. Um, so I think, you know, there could there could be, you know, a way of looking at this as well, if everybody else is being um, told to stay put, why shouldn't uh, asylum seekers, refugees, migrants also have to stay put? Yeah. Um, but I think it's really, really important to keep in mind that the, you know, underlying factors that are causing those displacements and those migrations haven't changed. So COVID-19 can be a factor that makes people's situations more precarious, mm. um, but it's not a factor that makes it safer to stay somewhere. Right. Um, there's no encouragement. There's no encouragement to stay home when you can't stay home. Yeah. But is there? Yeah. I mean, I I kind of understood from at least I think it's the most recent piece you wrote. It may have been two weeks ago or three weeks ago, how COVID-19 halted NGO migrant rescues in the Mediterranean. A lot of things that are explored in these articles, and I want to emphasize, these are not just standard articles. These are each, this is like a proper story in an essay, and they're actually, they're a pleasure to read, that the sincere attempt of a of a rescue worker is, is stunted because of coronavirus. Is there anything on the other side? Meaning that the Europeans that are trying to help are reluctant because of coronavirus yeah um so i would i would say the 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 second important thing um that i've you know in, in terms of sort of contextualizing the work around migration mm. um or my reporting around migration during the coronavirus pandemic is that um there's been a trend towards limiting mobility um and making it more difficult for people to you know, cross borders to reach somewhere where they can apply for asylum um, mm -hmm. for a number of years now. 
Yeah. So what we're seeing under coronavirus is sort of um, an acceleration of that trend or a, mm. an extension mm. of that trend in a lot of ways. And there are, um, you know, th there are instances where uh, governments are putting in place policies that limit access to asylum and limit mobility that have nothing to do that, that can't be justified by with COVID uh, public health concerns. Right. 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 Um, and then there are instances where, so the search and rescue example that you brought up is an instance where, um, you know, the people who are working on these NGO boats in the Mediterranean um, who are sort of filling this gap because European countries have withdrawn from doing proactive search and rescue activities in the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're, they're European citizens who are subject to the same sort of uh, travel restrictions and stay at home orders that many of us are subject to. So, you know, if you're a German who wants to go volunteer on one of these boats, now you can't do that because you can't get to the place where the where the boat is leaving. from. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. So so that's one of the factors It's sort of, uh, you know, that's not a, a malevolent sort of attempt to limit uh, the ability to people for, mm. for people to help asylum seekers and migrants. That's just sort of, uh, you know, um, the coronavirus putting in place the, the response to the coronavirus, putting in place an obstacle um that you know is equally applied to everybody right um on the other side of the equation you have you know things like um hungary canceling its asylum process right and using coronavirus as a justification for that mm -hmm. where you know if hungary has been putting in place policies for years now looking to limit access to asylum so it's a very clear example of how um you know, the government in Hungary is leveraging the virus to put in place a policy that doesn't really have anything to do with, you know, public health or public safety. Right. Um, and and using that to restrict uh, people's ability to, to find safety. I'm impressed that you're eloquent even after midnight. So, you know what, I should do this with <laughs> I should do this regularly with you. If this is your magic at midnight, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I wonder what yeah. you're like at 5 p.m. <laughs> I, I, might, I might be less articulate at 5 p.m. All right. So that's, yeah, that's, the that's nap time, Ronnie. It's, of course, you know, I always forget it's siesta time. <laughs> you know, but it's uh, in my own, my limited knowledge on the subject, and I want to sort of take it from coronavirus into the, the wider political sort of background story here uh would you would you argue that this issue is still the biggest concern at least when it comes to the consequences of conflict in the middle east meaning that uh whether it's hungary's reaction or even when it's the turkish greek border or for that matter maybe the uh the hysteria in the UK that we saw prior to Brexit, that kind of advertisement of floods of Syrian refugees marching their way into Europe. Is this still a central issue or has it has it kind of taken a backseat that now people are less engaged with the subject? And the, the fact that the numbers did decline enough where people are not seeing it as a pressing concern any longer. Um, I, I think that it is it is still um, an animating issue, mm. um, in, especially in terms of European politics. Um, you're, you're right that the numbers have declined significantly um, to, you know, for, for the central Mediterranean between North Africa and Italy. Mm. Um, you know, th there's always been a degree of irregular migration. I guess that's that's another important point. Um, you know, 
people tended to tune in in 2014, 2015, mm. somewhere around that time period, right? Mm-hmm. But um, historically, there's always been a degree of movement between uh, North Africa and Italy, and also between uh, Turkey and Greece. Um, so this is not some historically unprecedented right, right. thing that has happened. It's just for a handful of years, there were numbers that hadn't been seen before. So even um, even prior to Libya and the Libyan war, that this was always an ongoing issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. you, you would you'll you'll actually appreciate this. I think um, Gaddafi was very shrewd in his understanding of European politics, and he actually used. Um, the irregular migration issue as a um, as a as a pressure tool to extract concessions from Europe, mm. um, and just prior to you know when when um, the EU announced that it would be participating in the you know in the support of the uh, opposition in Libya, yes. Gaddafi made a speech saying that he was going to uh, I might not get the quote directly correct but a paraphrase of what he said was he was going to launch refugee boats refugee boats at uh at europe like missiles so this was a weapon that 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 he was using and this is what going back to i'm I'm guessing way before any of the arab spring uh issues began that this is a a long-standing weapon yeah going back at least at least to the mid 90s Right, right um and you know he he actually made a deal with Italy at some point where he would control migration and in return for you know uh, economic support in mm. return for training of um, you know of the Libyan Coast Guard that that sort of stuff. Is any of this repeating itself, where the Europeans are looking at autocrats to kind of deal with this issue? Is is there yeah. is that yeah? Mm. Abs- absolutely. I mean, um, Turkey is a good example of that. Um, 2015 was the the big year for migration between Turkey and um, and Greece that that's the year where you know between um, the beginning of 2015 and the beginning of 2016 more than a million people crossed from Turkey into Greece and then most of them made their way onward to, to northern Europe mm-hmm. uh, and the you know the thing that's credited with bringing that um, surge in, in migration to an end was the EU-Turkey deal, which was signed between um, the EU and and Turkey. It's an informal agreement, right? Uh, more of a, an understanding than like a treaty or um, you know a legally binding thing. But basically, it was um, saying that the Turkish government under Erdogan would control uh, Turkey's borders um, in exchange for financial support from the EU right. to right. Um, you know. A, a lot of the financial support went to, uh, you know, care for Syrian refugees who who were in Turkey because mm-hmm. Turkey hosts the the largest um, Syrian refugee population. Right, and I'm I mean this is your own sort of personal take. I'm curious, the the the, the, the let's say beyond the responsibility, let's say the solution is it still lie in solving conflicts in the Middle East first. And I, I'm going to just pick your brain here that had the Syrian yeah. war not sort of taken a very deadly turn where Syrians were forced to flee their homes en masse, millions ending up in Lebanon alone, and of course in Turkey and Jordan, and then many making their way into Europe, that that, that is still the 
primary concern at preventing conflict to that degree? Or is that something that's beyond the scope of the sort of debate that this is a sort of, you should be able to deal with the consequences regardless, that you should be able to handle that kind of uh, human movement? Yeah, I, I, I think, um, I mean, it, it depends on what perspective you approach it from. Mm. Um, you know, I think, I think from um, the perspective of the EU, there's a lot of talk about addressing the root causes of migration, whether mm -hmm. that be conflicts in places like Syria or the Middle East or, um, you know, uh, poverty and economic issues in places like West Africa. Um, so there's been a, a lot of, you know, particularly um, to address, you know, the, the sort of social root causes, yeah. there's been a lot of funding put into that from the EU. Um, less attention put towards trying to do anything sort of concrete on, on Syria. Um, mm. But what what the EU has also done is, you know, if, if people flee from a place like Syria, they've invested a lot of money in trying to, quote unquote, improve the conditions um, in first countries of asylum, so the first places that people reach after they flee, mm. um, so that there might not be so much of an incentive to, to leave um, a second time and, and try to make it to Europe. Right. Um, the but, other but there's side no, that, nothing yeah, concrete when it comes to Syria, that that was kind of nothing. off. Yeah. Yeah. So, mm. so that, that's what, I mean, yeah, you know, over the, over the course of the war in Syria, um, both European countries and the U S especially after a certain point checked out a bit in terms of yeah. taking very strong proactive actions mm -hmm. to, um, you know, shape the out outcome of the conflict somehow um so i guess that's what that's what i meant yes, by yes. Mm -hmm. um by that that part of it um looking at it from like a a, a a human rights and international legal standpoint it's a little bit different because um you know the the international refugee convention um and international law around these issues uh was developed in the wake of world war ii where you had a massive refugee crisis mm. uh, and so, you know, there, international law and EU law is, um, you know, very explicit that it doesn't matter how many people are fleeing, you have a legal obligation right. to listen to people's claims to asylum mm -hmm. on an individual basis. And if people have, you know, a legitimate fear for their lives, fear for political persecution, um, then they need to be granted asylum. Um, so, so in that sense, it's not so much about how many people are coming, why are they coming, it's about um, countries who have built systems that are based on a particular set of values, um, right. respecting and living up to those values. Did I understand it right that there's, and I, I got this from several articles, that there is a maritime law issue as well, that you are obligated to help those in stress. And in, in the sea, that that's yeah. that, that that's that's not a political debate. That's a you know, in a sense, that's a that's a requirement. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, it's a it's a legal requirement in maritime law that if um, if a ship and this this doesn't just go for uh, like a refugee ship mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. or you know boat carrying asylum seekers and migrants. This goes for um, you know for any uh, vessel at sea. Mm -hmm. But if there's a ship in distress at sea. Um, then there's a legal obligation um, to attempt to rescue the people on that ship. And it's right. 
every every country is supposed to have a maritime rescue coordination center and you know uh, um, you know there are, there are parts of the sea that extend from their territorial waters that they have responsibility over and if a ship is um, you know in in distress in that water then then um, you know they're responsible for contacting the closest vessel to that ship and making sure a rescue attempt takes place. You know, the reason I ask is that, I, and I did not know this, that there is a rescue ship, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's, I don't remember the origins, It's but it's named after the Alan Kurdi incident, mm-hmm. the tragic death of the Syrian boy washed, uh, dr- drowned uh, on the coast. I don't remember the country that, it was it, I hope I got this, was it Ireland? Um, the the flag state of the of the Alan Kurdi is uh, Germany. Germany, sorry, right, and that they are picking up where states are not. That they are kind of proactively trying, and and with all the difficulties of whether it's COVID nineteen or any 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 difficulty, that they're they're in a way fulfilling the role of a state's responsibility. That they're the ones, and you pointed at uh, certain countries that kind of now avoid migrant paths they look at libya for example and they kind of pick a des- they pick an area that they know no one is heading towards it's almost like ignore yeah. act proactively avoiding it yeah and i think it's, it's also interesting to look you know because you asked about the politics around it earlier mm-hmm. like how how important is this issue politically still mm-hmm. um and um i was i was saying that in terms of in terms of actual numbers you know the numbers are not you know between 2013 and 2017 the numbers were you know several times higher than they had ever been in the past yes uh, but now the numbers you know they, they were starting to creep up a little bit last year but they're you know they're not historically unprecedented numbers at this point they're well within the range of you right. know where things were prior to 2011. Um, I see so it's, it's it's like familiar territory yeah it should yeah. it should be but the 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 you know the migration issue has become such a hot button political issue you mentioned it being you know one of the you know one of the scare tactics that was um evoked during the brexit campaign yeah um it, it's become such a salient political issue that you know even if the numbers are small people have an awareness of it now to an extent and particularly sort of right-wing populist parties have an understanding of how to exploit anxieties around it in right, a way right. that you know um, really drives the conversation around it and also drives the policy around it. Um, yeah. And so this this issue of um, you know why are NGOs doing this search and rescue work to begin with um, is a good is a good illustration of it because. Um, in 2013, at the beginning of October, um, there was there was a shipwreck off the coast of Lampedusa, which is the southernmost Italian island. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. It's the you know the closest point in Europe to uh, to to North Africa, um, and I can't re- remember the numbers off the top of my head, but you know several hundred people drowned within sight of the coast of the island of Lampedusa. Yes. Um, and over the next couple of days, the bodies were brought ashore or washed ashore and they were put in coffins and the survivors came on shore and they told their stories and there were pictures in the media of, you know, hangers full of coffins mm. um, you know, stretching on. Um, and, and it was this moment that really, you know, it was it, it evoked a powerful sort of humanitarian 
um, sentiment right. from the general public in Italy at the time, the general public in Europe, and also the Italian government. And so after that, Italy put um, put together a, uh, a proactive um, maritime search and rescue mission with its Navy and its Coast Guard called Mare Nostrum, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, between the end of October 2013 and around the same time 2014, the Italian Navy said any boat that is in distress in the waters between Italy and Libya were responsible for saving and we're doing this as a humanitarian action by the state. Right. That was 2014. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You fast forward six years and now you have what you were referring to. Um, the, the EU at the beginning of April launched a um, new maritime mission um, that's mandate is to enforce the arms blockade on Libya. Right. Um, and the issue of, you know, so the whole debate is, do, does the presence of ships rescuing people at sea create a pull factor that incentivizes people to come to Europe? And, or, I, and I'm going to interrupt you. Sorry. I, I like that you also emphasize the point that there's been no evidence to show that. Yeah. So yeah. the statistical research on it doesn't show the presence of rescue boats being a decisive factor in any way. Right. Um, but the issue of, you know, uh, maritime search and rescue almost prevented this arms embargo maritime mission from actually taking shape. Right. And then once it did take shape, it took shape with compromises um, where now the operational plan of the mission has the boats from the mission um, stationed in an area off the coast of Libya where you know, refugee and migrant departures usually don't take place so that the boats are far away from where people are going out to sea. So it's less likely they will, you know, end up having to rescue people and bring them to Europe. So in a way that that's proof, I guess, that the politics still matter, that there is there are political calculations that are still being made based on sort of that 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 fear mongering. Yeah, the, the, the politics matter tremendously in the context of of the EU, for sure. Right. You know, Eric, there's an article you released about um, uh, these sort of very, very dangerous attempts in northern Lebanon, these boats sort of trying to make their way to Cyprus, and that even though the numbers were not that big, still the fact that this was happening, this was a new kind of attempt at Syrian refugees fleeing Lebanon. The article is Unsafe in Syria, Unwanted in Lebanon. And I ask you this because as somebody who's, I mean maybe automatically I'm just I, I lean more towards the Lebanese pieces out of pure prejudice maybe I don't know but I kind of was yeah. reading through that article carefully this is a story I had no idea about never heard of um, it's almost like uncovering something for the first time and did anyone else report on this issue because I, I looked thoroughly online and I couldn't find any other material on, on those ships uh, not, not ships sorry these like very sort of rickety boats that were, and and people were dying as a result. Was there was there yeah. large coverage there? Because I I really couldn't find any other material. Yeah, I, there there wasn't a lot of coverage. I remember I remember at the time seeing a couple of stories, and there were you know maybe one or two stories that 
it came after the one that I did also, but it, you know, it never became a, a big news item. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think, I think there's multiple reasons why potentially one was, I think that, um, you know, authorities in Lebanon were sort of trying to keep a lid on it because mm. they didn't want people to think of it as, you know, oh, this is an option. Like, this is something we can try to do because there's probably right. plenty of people in Lebanon who would want to leave. Yeah. Um, if if there was a way to do so, um, so I think you know, I think the the the, the army in, in the north was in particular, you know, sort of keeping things quiet a bit. Um, but the reason I'm, I'm and the, and the, yeah sorry go ahead go yeah. ahead and and the other thing is that you know the, the army in the north did a very good job also policing the uh, maritime border in Lebanon so not too many of these boats were able to go right you know if if it was if it was an open route I think you would have seen a lot more of it happening right that makes sense and you also pointed out that just the fact that Lebanon the coast is not that long to begin with and it's it's a heavily populated coast that it's easy to catch that kind of activity or or, or it's not in, it's it's difficult to kind of avoid scrutiny that way but the reason i'm asking you is because that is investigative journalism and uh, sorry yeah go ahead i'm 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 laughing because i, I think you'll you'll enjoy the the, the backstory um, of of how i ended up writing that article which you know <laughs> might might take the mask off of investigative journalism oh. a little bit um <laughs> You were you were trying to Actually, get to Cyprus. <laughs> yeah, I was I was looking for a way myself. No, um, that 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 story actually fell into my lap, um, mm. and it, you know, I, I so so what happened was I you know I was living in Beirut at the time, um, and one day I got a, a, a WhatsApp message out of the blue from somebody who somebody whose name on WhatsApp was Abu Al Shahid. Okay. And, you know, and he, he was writing to me um, <laughs> in, you know, basically like assuming that I knew something and was saying like, I'm the, I'm the father of the boy who died. Oh, um, oh, you help me. I see. Right. And that, that's yeah. the father in the, in the article. That's the father in the article. Right. Um, and so I, I guess, you know, it's, it's been a little bit, of, a little while since I, I looked at this. So the names are escaping me right now. But. Um, I mean, the basic story is that, um, you know, there was, I guess this was the beginning of November 2000 and must've been 2018 at this point, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, where, um, there was a, there was a boat full of, you know, um, a couple dozen Syrian refugees that tried to leave from a, a port North of Tripoli. Yes. Uh, and it, it capsized and, um, a young, a young toddler drowned. So a very, a very tragic story. Um, and you know the the father of the toddler reached out to me on WhatsApp, and initially I was like, "Who, who is this? How did how sure. who is this? And how did they get my number? Are they even talking to the right person? Is this some kind of scam? Like, is this some kind of sick, dark scam of course, that somebody's yeah. calling themselves the the father of the martyr, who's asking me for help with something?" And so I, I was, you know, all like curious but skeptical and i basically chatted with the guy for a little while and and ended up um figuring out how to figuring out how he got my number Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um which was you know there there are a number of different um like facebook groups and whatsapp groups um 
organized by Syrians, you know, in Turkey, in Europe, all over the place that that monitored sea crossings. Um, and I had been in touch with them for a different story I had done earlier. Mm. And so this father had um, contacted them afterwards asking if they could help him somehow. Right. Um, and and they said, we can't help you, but here's the number of some journalists in Lebanon. Wow. Who we just talked to. Um, so, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like I was like digging for uh, days and days and days trying to or weeks or months trying to figure, uncover the story. It just sort of fell into my lap. Right. And it was right. a matter of, you know, then it was just a matter of going in and um, and, and visiting him up in Tripoli and, and talking to some other people up there to, you know, to sort of build out the picture of, of what was happening. But it's still I mean, regardless of maybe how how the story emerged. It's it's a, I think it's a very. Um, there's a storytelling craft to that kind of reporting that I find very attractive. That uh, I believe the toddler's name was Khaled, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but but you bring them to life. And this is not just a dry sort of statistics and sort of uh, something that you kind of don't pay attention to. The the figures that are continuous, uh, the tragedy itself. I, th- I think you were able to kind of bring this person to life in a way, and especially to a Lebanese audience. I, I I hope I'm getting this right. This was a story that was barely touched on, and I think you, yours is probably the most expansive take on it. And I'm just curious about you here because I know that I, I've followed your work in in different ways. I know that you used to work for Wired. I don't know if you still do. Maybe that's sort of, uh, I, I know your investigative journalism there, and I think that's primarily Africa-based, African sort of uh, migrants heading north to Europe. But I never saw it in the, in the Lebanese context, and I enjoyed it. And then I remembered over time that, no, you've done this before, just in different terrain, that you wrote a very attractive obituary of Anthony Bourdain. Now, I'm not, these are very different, uh, this is very different terrain, uh, a tragedy north of Tripoli on a ship trying to make its way to Cyprus, and the suicide of Anthony Bourdain—they don't really <laughs> link up naturally. But you've, I think, developed a storytelling craft that is so really pulls the reader in, and it pulled me in. And uh, I want to maybe leave the migration issue and just talk about storytelling altogether. What brought you yeah. to this world to begin with? And how is it that you can actually bring someone to life like Anthony Bourdain and bring his story to life and also talk about the suffering of a migrant, the father losing his son at sea, and it's all Middle East focused. Um, I'm just curious about you. What drew you to this world and and, uh, why are you still involved in this world? And what is it about you that that makes storytelling sort of part of your part of your passion and your career? Yeah. Um, hint, hint! You, know, you was, should you should uh, now introduce me to the podcast. No, I'm kidding. I'm, yeah, kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I'm joking. You're, no. you're, you're you're a big you're a big part of the story, Ronnie. Actually, maybe I should edit the um, hint hint part out. I'll just sort of like fade to black. Yeah. Fade when when uh, when uh, coronavirus ends. Take the walk Beirut tour. Maybe you'll, <laughs> you'll end up as lucky as me. That's, um, that's the plug I need when it comes back to yeah. life. That thank you. You did it for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I, it's, it's a good question. And, um, I did not find my way into it intentionally, mm-hmm. I think is, is the best thing that I can say. I sort of, I sort of stumbled into it 
Mm. And in retrospect, it makes a lot of sense, but there was not a lot of foresight um, into the process of getting into it. Right. Um, you know, in in terms of in terms of how I got into into journalism, um, you know, this is the story that you're a part of. Is um, it's never been shared publicly. <laughs> it's been shared yeah. between us, and now it's time. <laughs> yeah, it's time. Um, you know, so I, I graduated from university in 2012, um, and had zero idea whatsoever what I wanted to do with my life. Um, but I had studied uh, international studies with a concentration in the Middle East, and I had had the had 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 to study Arabic for three years of that. It was oh, okay. So a, you you kind of had an academic understanding, let's say, of of what was happening. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yes, but you know, academic I think is the key word. Sure. <laughs> um, I did. I, I, let's emphasize academic understanding. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I had I had had to study Arabic for three years as part of that, and when I graduated, I mean, Arab, Arabic is a tough language for someone who's not a native speaker, and you know, we're ten years past the point where I, you know. Um, decided to continue studying it after school, and I am still far from fluent in it. So, um, you know, it was it was by far the most difficult thing that I did when I was in university. Mm -hmm. um, and literally, the only thing that I could think to do as a way to put one foot in front of the other after I graduated was to say this was the most difficult. You know, I, I sort of asked myself this classic question of where do I want to be five years after graduation? Mm -hmm. And I had no answer to it. Um, the only answer that came to my mind was Arabic was so difficult that if I don't do anything with this language at this point and forget everything that I've sort of learned up to this point, I'm just going to hate myself. So that's interesting. The, the one so the language is kind of what drew you to the part of the world that speaks the language. Yeah. And you know, I don't know if it was so much of a like romantic, like, oh, Arabic is such a beautiful language. And I'm like, you know, I want to read Mahmoud Darwish in his native tongue and all of this kind of stuff as it was like, mm. I was just being st stubborn. It's <laughs> like, I put so much time, I put so much time into this. Yeah. Um, that if I don't, if I just leave it and forget everything now, I'm going to be really frustrated with myself. Um, and, and, you know, I think I, I had also from having an academic background in the Middle East, you know, Beirut has a bit of a, an aura around it. Right. So I had already. So Beirut wasn't the been, first, it wasn't it, like you were thinking about Beirut while studying and then you thought I would live in Lebanon. It didn't happen that way. It was more like a language that drew you to the Middle East over time out of, out of, in a way, making sure your degree is worth something to you. Yeah, it was like, it was like, I want to continue to study Arabic because I would be really frustrated with myself if I forget everything because I spent a lot of time studying yes. flashcards. But then what you did, and I'm, this is going, I mean, this is, I, I like talking to you for a number of reasons, just not because we're friends, but also that I can do this with you without hesitation. You chose the worst country in the world to study Arabic. I know. So this is this is where this is where like the aura of Beirut comes in, right? Yes. Yeah. Because I had also I had also sort of been you know like touched by the by the mythology of the city a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I knew very little about Lebanon. You know, I moved I moved there in October October 2012. I knew very little about Lebanon before mm-hmm. I moved there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did, you know, Beirut. Like when people say Beirut, there's like a, you know, there's a certain gravity to just the name of the city. Yes. Um, so I was I was attracted to that without really knowing why I was attracted to it. So I said, okay, I have no idea what I want to do with my life after graduation. I want to keep studying Arabic. Beirut sounds interesting. I don't really know why, but like there's this gravitational pull in that direction somehow. So let's put Arabic courses Beirut into Google and see what comes up. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so yeah. that's, that's straightforward. So, that's how you ended up. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's, that's how I ended up in Beirut. And yes. then... A couple of weeks after I ended up in Beirut, I had a friend who was studying at LAU. Who he was on an exchange program and was studying, um, you know, Lebanese history, politics, and society. Um, and I was, you know, after I after I moved to Beirut, I was starting to educate myself a bit about, you know, Lebanon and the and the history and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, "Hey, Eric, you should go take this walking tour." Um, and uh, this is our, our friend Michael Coulomb. I, I feel like you probably remember Mike. I I, I mean, this is, I I I do remember you with someone on the tour. It's probably probably him, or maybe not. Actually, my memory is not. Yeah, probably. I, I was thinking about this before. I've probably taken the tour more than. You, I, I don't want to say more than anybody else, but like I have to be in the top ten of like frequent frequent tour participants. The record holder, I think, has hit ten times already. So you're, but you're definitely in the top three. I know that for sure. <laughs> yeah, I have to be on like six or seven, and yeah. you know, I, if I haven't if I haven't taken it ten times, I've at least dropped people off there yeah. ten times. <laughs> That's included, by the way. Those you get you get points for that too. <laughs> oh, okay. so then I'm yeah ten actually 10 easily. You get two points for that. <laughs> oh, then yeah, that's, I'm at like twenty five because you showed up and brought someone with you. So that's technically you know yeah you're at fifty. <laughs> Great, top top of the leader. Top, yeah, you you won. Um, so so my friend Mike was studying at LAU, um, and I, I have to admit that first when you said take this walking tour, I was like, aren't walking like tours for these sort of like lame tourist things? Like, what am I actually gonna learn on a walking tour? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and and he said, look, I've been in Lebanon for two or three months studying history, politics, society, everything. I learned more in three hours on the Walk Beirut tour than I have learned in three months at LAU in my classes. You're giving me too much plug. I need, I need to, I will this, use these for is, advertising later. <laughs> this is this is Mike, this isn't me. Oh, sorry. <laughs> of course, sorry. Well then, I need to do an episode with him. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you his contact yes. information after this. Um, and so I, I was still a little skeptical, but he said, okay, I'll stop hanging out with you unless you go on the tour. <laughs> I didn't have too many friends in Lebanon at that point, so I sure. was like, okay, fine, I'll go on the tour. Like, I guess if you're so but, but, but you're still new to Beirut at that point. I mean, you just had you had just yeah. arrived, right? Yeah. I'd, I'd been there for, for maybe a month or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, long story short, some, somewhere along the line in the tour, we chatted a little bit. I told you I was in town studying Arabic. Um, and you decided, you know, you you end the tour in uh, Samir Asir Square, yes. um, and and decided to give me the task of reading the inscription on on the bench. There's a right. French inscription and an Arabic inscription, 
um, on the bench. Um, and you, I just, you know, somehow I mumbled my way through most of it. And got the <laughs> translation relatively like I, 75% accurate. Sometimes I have to do this on the, on the podcast. Eric, can you read this? Yeah. Gotta bring it up. But you already got what you needed out of it. So this is just for, this is just for, I'll send, I'll send, I'll send you my address. So you can send me another copy of the book. <laughs> so that that's in a way our friendship started from there. It did. Um, and, and also my journalism career started from there because the, the reward on the tour for, you know, reading that quote and translating it is, um, you know, being given a copy of Samir Asir's um, Beirut, uh, you know, a, a history. Um, and I was I was standing around afterwards waiting to thank you for, for the tour and the book and overheard you telling somebody else about the Samir Asir Foundation and that they sometimes take on interns. Right. Um, and so when I went home, I, I returned to my old friend Google and typed in Samir Asir Foundation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and a couple a couple of weeks later ended up um you know with the with the an internship um at the sky center for media and cultural freedom which is sort of what got me into the world of journalism and writing um i, I like that storytelling has this way of of expanding and it, it kind of links up because in a way i'm sharing a story about a journalist that i admired uh, a storyteller in all his right and giving that sort of story to you and then you finding your own story later and your own personal journey this is quite meaningful to me i mean i we joke around about it when we see each other in beirut and we've maybe uh we kind of i mean as friends would do we kind of jibe at each other about it in, in different ways and i think uh we've probably had more drinking nights together than flattery nights and I, maybe one of your departure parties was at my apartment, maybe. Yeah, I, I, it, it was. It yeah. was for sure. From what I remember of that night, it ended up at my apartment. So that's... <laughs> we've had those yeah, moments there was, too. There was, there was ping pong involved but, also. Exactly. Ping pong. Yes. Thank you. But I, I like that you you kind of... I mean, I associate a lot of what I read about Beirut today uh, with people I know. And these are people I've met in the last few years, and you're one of them. And the obituary you wrote about Anthony Bourdain, in my opinion, still stands out. And I told you this in person after you wrote it. And the last, the last lines of that piece, I'm going to share it here. In a way, then, Beirut gave us Bourdain, or at least helped unleash his voice that will now be so deeply missed. For that, we should all be thankful to this deeply troubled, yet somehow intensely beautiful city. I get from what you've written about Beirut and how you saw Anthony Bourdain's relationship to the city and also how you saw Beirut's relationship to him, that you kind of are now part of that mix, that Beirut in a way impacted you to a point and you've taken a lot of your own sort of trajectory from that city. And you end the, you end the piece with troubled, beautiful, and this sort of duality that we all know, prosperous, ruinous, stable, unstable, all of the above, but that duality from your own perspective, asking you as a as a journalist and as someone who's lived in Lebanon, who I think probably still considers Beirut home. And if I got this right, I remember last time we spoke, 
you still only had a, an apartment in Be you had a room for rent in Beirut that was technically your home still for the last number of years so still you have some connection there and it, I get I guess that it's permanent the last few months of what we saw on the streets of Beirut the demands that were not met and the ability for protesters today to still push and demand that they're not going home do you see a time in your life uh, do you see a moment in your lifetime where Beirut will be able to end that cycle of trouble despair and beauty and prosperity where we could only see a prosperous future rather than seeing the back and forth that we're all familiar with Samir Asir wrote about it I think it hit Anthony Bourdain hard uh, we've all lived through it in different ways and I'm just curious your own immediate reaction do you see hope on the horizon for Lebanon Um, yeah, I guess it's, it's a, it's a tough, tough question for me to, I mean, the, the easy answer is I hope so. Um, you know, cause as, as you know, I think, I think you were exactly right that I at least feel that, you know, Beirut has become part of my story and, you know, I, in a lot of ways, Beirut is also a city that in, in, in some ways is, you know, at least the story of it is defined by the people who have written about it. So every time I've written something about Beirut, I have been, you know, very, very conscious of, you know, sort of the, the tradition of writing about Beirut also that I am participating in at, at the same time. Um, it's, it's a, a strange position to be in that, you know, just despite my, last name looking deceptively like a Lebanese last name. Um, you know, <laughs> and have, and sorry, no... you also could pass. You look more than I do at any point. <laughs> You're more Lebanese than I am. So yeah, I'll give that one. Eric Reid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, but despite those things, mm -hmm. um, I had I had no connection to the city until I was 22. Um, between, between 22 and, you know, yeah, I, I lived there for 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 the most part between the ages of 22 and and 28, hmm. um, and you know Beirut was was home more than anywhere else in the world during that time period, and it it still feels like it will always be home in a way. But I'm I'm also, you know, always an outsider in some way in the city. Like I'm not, you know, I'm, yeah, yeah. I, my my relationship to it is as somebody who has come to it as a foreigner mm -hmm. um and um developed a relationship with it but I, you know I'm, I'm not the like you know i'm not i'm not my 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 fate isn't tied to it in the same way as yeah. the fates of the protesters on the street um so i, I you know I, I just i feel like i can't claim belonging in the in the same way it's it's a, it's a voluntary relationship as opposed to yeah. you know a, a relationship of, of birth but even then um, even at a, that kind of healthy distance to the story you still see some hope on the horizon yeah i you know i i think i have from from the time i started living there i have been hopeful to some degree because of 
the people I know in the city, mm. Um, mm -hmm. you know, who, who care about the place, who believe in what it can be, what it could be, um, who are, you know, carrying, you know, carrying on this tradition of, you know, that, that writers like Samir Asir, um, believed in and mm. were and were working towards um you know your 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 tour is part of that and i'm not saying that to you know be um to get more to get more points yeah to to inch up on the leaderboard no i, I mean i mean it sincerely your tour is you know in terms of storytelling it's a part of telling that story about you know the the pain and the struggle and the beauty and what what this place could be um and the you know the people at the Samira Sir Foundation and the Sky Center for Media and Cultural Freedom, which has been a big part of my um experience with Lebanon also, you know, the, these are people who, you know, believe in in the symbol of what Lebanon could be in its most you know, in, in, in its best version of itself, not right. the version right. of itself that it is right now. Right. Um uh, but the version of itself that it could be. Um, and so, you know, and, and I think in a lot of ways, the, the, the protests that have been happening since um, October are an expression of this same tradition. Um, hmm. Hmm. And, you know, it, it, not exclusively, I think it's probably too simplistic to paint them with one mm -hmm. brush. But, you know, the, the, at least that tradition is being expressed in aspects of the protest. And in a lot of people who are involved in them, um, you know, this this idea of what this country could be as the best version of itself. Um, yeah. it, and so, you know, I guess as, as long as as long as, you know, those people are around who are willing to, you know, to work towards that and fight for that, then I am hopeful to some extent Um you know, do do I have a prediction about whether it will be in my lifetime or, you know, something like that? I, I you know, I, I hope so. I guess I also, you know, think about history not so much as, you know, as a as a linear progression, but yeah, um, as a lot of different fits and starts. Right. So, right. You know, I, you know, I, I, I think about Beirut often, um, you know, even not living there anymore. It's been almost a year since I last visited. Um, but, you know, in, in my head during lockdown, I sometimes walk down the streets that are so familiar to me and yeah. imagine what they look like, you know, both gutted by the economic situation and now also gutted by the, you know, the coronavirus situation. Um, yeah. And just sort of you know, tr try try to imagine, um, you know, what these months and what this time is doing to you know, to, to this city that has has always been so um, vivacious in so many ways. Um, and it you know it saddens me to think about what they probably are like and to you know to see the glimpses of them that I do through friends and that kind of stuff. Eric, that was both sober and sweet, and I think even if your life was on, even even if you only spent six years that's still a six years that i think probably changed you from within and i'm glad that i played a small part in your storytelling evolution 
I won't take any credit beyond that. Just that you accidentally Google searched a few things and then accidentally ended up on a tour and accidentally landed in an internship that accidentally took you into the journalism career. I just I'm happy that I stumbled into you in, in that way and that we've sort of kept our conversations going since. And um, I know it's not a I don't I know you don't have any personal stake like the protester on the street. But I, I know that Beirut uh, impacted your life personally. And I also know that, and I hope I can keep this in the episode, uh, you, at some point you fell in love with a woman. I believe you're at her place right now. And you, you told me something in passing, which I loved. You said, yeah, I really want her to visit Beirut. I want her to know what home feels like. And I'm like, you're not from, like, <laughs> you don't want to take her back to the States. You want to take her to Beirut. And I love that, that yeah. you, your initial... The initial place you wanted her to see is your life in Lebanon, which I think that yeah. that, that sort of speaks for itself. And, yeah, um, absolutely. And Eric, uh, all the uncensored stuff will stay between us. There's a lot of good stuff that will not make it to the episode. Um, I appreciate the fact that you're still doing storytelling, even if it's not in Lebanon, even if you're not there for the, for the time being. You're in Mumbai at the moment. I'm in New York. I look forward to running into you in Beirut. And I think that will happen sooner than later. So yeah, with I that we can we can we can have a, me- a meal at Charleville's and uh, <laughs> and find some find a cafe on the steps to play a game of chess. You know, that's the episode that will never happen. My conversation with Sharbir because I think it'll just be maybe five <laughs> seconds of a thought that just kind of derails into something else that's just menu oriented and shouting i don't know what to do but he is part of our life and i think i've enjoyed just sending photos of him at le chef while i'm eating and then you kind of walk in or you are literally on your way there walking past the window and we ended up eating together many many times i think we'll do that sooner than later so i've taken too much of your time it's probably past one on your side so eric thank you so much thank you ronnie Thanks for listening, and a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.